This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to The Next Stage Podcast. Every now and then, uh, we at The Next Stage like to check in with what's taking place on North American university campuses, put our finger on the pulse, get a sense of you know, how the current generation of students are relating to issues of Jewish identity, um, what's taking place in Israel, especially now with everything that's happened in the last year, give or take, uh, since the election last November, it's clear that the diaspora Jewish community is seeing what's happening here in our country differently than many Israelis. And in order to help us better understand the climate, the attitudes, the, the situation for diaspora Jews on American campuses, I've asked McKenna Bates to join us in the show. McKenna is the director of Israel Engagement at the Towson University Hillel. Uh, Kenna, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. Kenna is also a longtime listener of the Next Stage podcast, and I see her frequently sharing it on Instagram and other social media platforms. So maybe before we dive into what's taking place on campus, you can share with our listeners uh, what you like about the show and why you think it's important for young people to engage with it. Uh, absolutely. Um, when I first heard of the Vision Movement, I first met uh, met you, I was really struggling with my Israel identity or perhaps my relationship with Israel. It was very hard for me to reconcile these stories that I had grown up with and the experiences that I had had with family, uh, with Palestinian narratives and the experiences that the, my friends and my peers around me uh, were sharing. And so I found that the Next Stage podcast specifically, but also the Vision Movement as a whole, um, really helped me reconcile that um, and move forward. You know, I think there's this box that we're all becoming more and more aware of. And uh, the, the Vision Movement really helps to break out of that box. And I find that to be really hopeful. Right. I think that at the moment, uh, you probably know this better than I do, but my experience is that among, you know, politically engaged Jewish students in the diaspora, there are quite a few who are really committed to Israel, to Jewish identity, to the land of Israel, to Torah, uh, but are completely blind to systems of oppression and how many other groups are suffering as a result of the status quo. And there are also many young politically engaged Jews who are showing up for everyone, uh, but have no connection to Jewish identity. Like they're committed to fighting systems of oppression, but they don't have any real connection to their own identity, to their own history, to their own national story. And I think a lot of what we try to do at the Vision Movement is create a critical mass of young leaders who are both, who are who are really committed to their identities as Jews, who really self-identify as characters in our people's story, and as the children of Israel uh, work to fight injustices elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Okay, so th that out of the way, why don't you share with us a little bit about what's taking place on your campus? Or, you know, I, I imagine you're also plugged into other campuses as well. You know, what is the climate on Towson University at the Hillel? Conversations around Jewish identity, around the state of Israel, around Palestinian issues, BDS, the protest movement that's been going on here for the last eight months or so. How is that playing out on your campus? 
that's a, a big question. That's a, a lot of conversations. Um, I find, or I, I have found that when I started working at Towson Hillel, something really surprised me. Um, I went to George Mason University in my undergrad, and that was a very political campus, and it was a very anti-Israel campus. And the Israel conversation was always in in the main sphere, um, even in classes about the Crusades or, or things that you really wouldn't think would be related to the modern conflict. It would come up. Whereas at Towson uh, and in many other uh, schools in that uh, region, um, I've noticed something that the students are really afraid to engage. Um, they feel like they don't know enough to talk about these issues, um, or if they do think that they know enough to talk about these issues, they won't do it unless they feel they know their audience. Um, there's this fear of being ostracized, um, but they're really just very avoidant of having a confrontation in the first place. And so a big part of my job is trying to con convince them, maybe convince isn't the right word, but trying to help them understand that you can have these conversations in Hillel's, in uh, Jewish communities on campus. This is a safe space. We can talk about these things. We can talk about the judicial protests and, you know, my students may support them or they may not support them. And no matter what, it's really my job to uh, help them realize that it's okay. Um, I find that with social media and especially after the big social media storm in May 2021, where everyone was posting their opinion on, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, my students really feel that there's a black and white to everything. And it's really hard to show them that, no, there's, there's gray, you can disagree with your friends and that's okay, it doesn't make you a bad person. Um, and that's something that I've I've noticed has really increased. Um, it was a small problem uh, when I started working at Hillel in 2020, and now in 2023, it's a bigger problem. Okay, any solutions? Um, I think normalizing uh, disagreement around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is really important. Um, I don't personally uh, hold stock in J Street's vision, but I have sent students to J Street conferences so that they can see Israel professionals other than me struggling with things that have to do with Israel. So they can see that we don't have to agree with everything the government does to still support the idea of Israel existing, of the Jewish people existing. Um, I've also found uh, that when it comes to Jewish identity, a lot of the leading voices in Jewish identity are liberal Zionists on Instagram or on Twitter. And some of my students and some of my peers who are still in that age, they see those liberal Zionist voices and they, they don't like them. They don't like their Israel politics and they conflate that with what they say about Jewish identity. And it leads them to distance themselves. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I noticed, by the way, that uh, J Street U on many campuses really strikes me as like a group therapy session for young Jews who grew up in staunchly Zionist homes, but have begun to realize that there are other angles one could look at the story from. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think I, I wrote about this in a piece um, maybe a year or two ago. I called it Cherry Tomato Advocacy is a No-Go. Um, I also grew up in a, a very right-wing revisionist Zionist background and I was very betrayed when I, or I felt very betrayed when I realized that the Palestinian, like Palestinians are real, they're real people, um, they exist, they have real culture. Um, and I was really ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so I've noticed that a lot of students 
whether they're my students or just people I, I see online, they're really feeling that too. And they're turning towards anyone and everyone who can give them a sense of validity. Um, and that often leads them to turn to groups like J Street U or If Not Now. Mm -hmm. So what prevented you from getting involved in J Street U or If Not Now? <laughs> it was actually you. I was, uh, I was on a right-wing Israel advocacy trip because um, it was free and I was really, really struggling. Um, I just wanted to be able to have some sort of Israel critical conversation without the other person making me feel like I hated Israel. Um, the extreme defensiveness of Israelis or of older generations of Israel advocates was really entrenching my feelings of betrayal. Um, and I remember you like gave a session where we just argued with you about Israel and it was very refreshing um, to just have that experience and to not feel like I uh, was having some sort of identity crisis over it. Ah, okay. Well, I didn't realize that, but you're welcome. <laughs> and thank you for sharing that with me. It's good for me to hear also, you know, any positive feedback I get is very encouraging and helps me keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, but uh, th that's actually very encouraging because I think that there are many Jewish college students out there who reach the point you described that they can't approach the Israel conversation the way older generations of pro-Israel Jews approached it. Uh, and they don't want to feel like traitors either. Uh, and they're still Jews and they still have emotional connections to Israel in many cases, but they want to be able to deal with the realities of Palestinian identity, Palestinian suffering, and even to a certain extent, the way in which Zionism contributed to that suffering uh, without, you know, again, without discarding their identities. Although I do think there are, even in Israeli society, I think there are certain groups or tribes within Israeli society that are better equipped to engage with Palestinians and their identities and narratives than others. Like, for example, I, I think if those more deeply connected to their own roots, those who are really connected to Jewish identity and Jewish history and uh, our aspirations spanning thousands of years, uh, were to really confront Palestinian identity uh, and the Palestinian story in its rawest form, I don't think those Jews are really in danger of losing themselves, losing their identities. Uh, I, I think they would still be committed to advancing Jewish liberation while simultaneously trying to make space for Palestinians. And in fact, I, that's probably what happened to me. Whereas if you see, you know, certain Israelis from maybe Gushtan, Tel Aviv more specifically, or, or even Hasbara people in the diaspora, like Hasbara type Jews in the diaspora, who really need Israel to be like the good guy in a kid's movie in order for them to like maintain their commitment and solidarity with Israel. I think those Jews are actually in a lot of danger of losing themselves, losing their own identities, if they were to accept the Palestinian story. So, so it's like safe. That, that's the irony. I think, you know, the Jews uh, living in the West Bank are actually the Jews best equipped to really confronting the Palestinian story and ultimately doing something about it. Uh, whereas I fear that if Jews less connected to their identities, their roots, uh, their national story were to engage with that Palestinian narrative, they would ultimately just become anti-Israel. Yes, and I I have seen that uh, play out. Um, I think I have found that student, I, I keep using the word students, I have found that Jewish young adults who are more progressive 
uh, tend to believe in this weird form of Jewish exceptionalism where we can't do anything wrong and we can never have done anything wrong. And I, I see it very uh, well reflected in progressive Zionism and liberal Zionism um, and also like within the reform movement as well. And I think that that really leads them to become anti-Israel, as you said, when they can't uh, you know, come to terms with this this fact that we're not perfect. We have done bad things and we, we have to grow and move forward with it. Um, but I've also found that students or Jewish young adults who uh, are more observant or perhaps uh, maybe you would describe them as more connected with uh, our people's history, I find that they are significantly less open-minded to other narratives and to Palestinian narratives. And so I find that to be very difficult, although I do I do think that you're right, that the uh, it's much easier to build allyship with people who you know genuinely feel, uh, they genuinely are experiencing their, their people's narratives, um, but they have to be open-minded to it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, like I've noticed that um, usually when students get involved in J Street U, that's not their destination, that's really just a way station. Like in many cases, students will continue on from J Street U to organizations like If Not Now or JVP or SJP, uh, often, often because I think that what J Street U really does, aside from providing this like space for everybody to like vent their own feelings, you know, being lied to their whole lives or however they understand it. Um, I, I don't think they've been lied to their whole lives. I just think that their parents and teachers growing up genuinely believe the versions of history they put forward. But uh, I, I think that what J Street U ultimately does is it provides students with an opportunity to really hear from Palestinians. Yet at the same time, it kind of dogmatically commits everybody to a two-state paradigm, which is a proven failure. and does not seem to meet the aspirations or grievances of any of the Palestinians they're engaging with. So ultimately, I think a lot of these students kind of move on from J Street uh, relatively quick. Absolutely. I, I mentioned a, a box, you know, I, the messaging that we receive throughout our lives as, as Jews in America is that the two-state solution is the ethical solution and that it's the only solution. And it was always very confusing to me as someone who never believed in the two-state solution that all these progressives would support segregation because that's how I see it. And I, I, I do feel that that is objective. Um, but it's, I think that these groups, they are way stations, but they're also hubs of negativity. And so that leads these Jews to throw the baby out with the bathwater and become anti-Israel or just become disillusioned with the whole project and move on from Jewish communal organizing uh, in general, which is not what we need. We need more Jewish communal organizers. Um, but they're very much hubs of negativity. Um, it's it's all, oh, this this thing is so terrible. That, uh, and we, we have to move towards the solution that kind of sounds great, but no one really wants, but we're not really gonna focus in on that too much. Um, and it, it leads people to feel really horrible about themselves and really horrible about likely their family members who live in Israel, who uh, they may have met on birthright for the first time or have met on FaceTime or something like that. Um, and I, th I think it can wreck families apart. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to be too critical of other organizations without you know criticizing our movement as well. Uh, I think the real challenge that Vision has operating on university campuses is that the message is often 
way too complicated for a lot of students who are really just dipping their toe into these conversations. Uh, and it's often too much of a paradigm shift for a lot of people, especially, you know, American Jewish students. Yes, I I think that's a good point. Um, I have often found that when I'm engaging with my students about these issues, they're looking for a simple answer. Um, because as I said, you know, with social media, everything is either black or white. You're either right or you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the people in your, your friend groups, they all need to be right and you need to be right with them uh, all in the same line. And so I found that uh, sometimes when I've when I've told my students, you know, Israel is 75 years old, when America was 75 years old, it was about to enter a civil war. And I'm not saying that Israel is going to, but I'm saying that Israel's still very young. We're still figuring it out. We have time to figure these things out. They're very uncomfortable by this, which is odd to me because I find this very hopeful. Uh, but they're they're uncomfortable with the idea that we're we don't have an answer yet. These things are very complicated, and it's okay to to feel that. Why do you think that makes people uncomfortable? It's hmm. a good question. Um, I think that there are. I think it's it's confusing. I think to to young Jewish young adults when they find uh, perhaps like a, a political icon like AOC who says all the right things except on Israel. Um, it's in these social media bites, everything is 140 characters or it's a small Instagram post. Um, I think the infographic is dying out, but you could say it's an infographic. It's a small bite of information, a small sound bite. Um, and so I think with, uh, keep, I keep hearing it on social media, but with the increase of, of the use of social media as a primary news source, especially TikTok, um, but with the use of social media as a primary news source for, for young adults, um, I think that they are kind of trapping themselves in their there's um, decreasing their attention spans to where they they really expect that everything is a simple answer. Um, and you know, d- diving deeper into it and and going into critical thought is it's not something that they're necessarily used to in this regard, um, only really in academic settings, perhaps. Um, and I, I don't think that they're really uh, used to looking at, the world and world conflicts in such an academic lens. Mm, that's interesting. You know, I I happen to feel that type of black and white thinking you're describing is really very un-Jewish. You know, like almost all of our ancient texts really, you know, primarily the Gemara, essentially see truth as very paradoxical and very multidimensional, meaning there's rarely ever a situation where we'll see that like one opinion is right and the other opinion is wrong. In most cases, we see that all opinions are correct or have correct features. You know, some might be not productive at this moment. You know, others might be the correct position to hold right now under these conditions. But it's rarely ever this is, you know, black and white. I, I feel that's a very Western way of thinking. And for me personally, one of the things that really helped me in my journey to be able to make space for the Palestinian story was really adopting a more uh, Jewish, or maybe I'd say like a Kabbalistic understanding of truth and reality. Yeah, um, I think you, as, as always, you make a good point. Um, it is very Jewish to to find multiple avenues of, of validity in, in different opinions. Um, and yet I've found that Jewish adults don't necessarily act that way. Um, I find that the older generations tend to view Israel as Disneyland, and that's it. 
you know um there's omissions and things i think it's a perhaps it's a, a trauma response about protecting the youth of oh we grew up with all this uncertainty the cold war um, we didn't know what was going to happen in the next five ten years and so we need to protect our children by giving them a better life and in that in giving them a better life perhaps there's been a removal of some of that nuance yeah, that could be but i think it's dangerous ultimately because our liberation at this point uh, very much depends on us being able to see past our own immediate security needs or and to really get over our own trauma like i, I think our liberation is very at, at this point one of the uh, primary objectives of jewish liberation is really being able to work through and overcome our own trauma uh, because until we do we're not going to be able to solve this conflict or even solve the societal frictions taking place in israeli society uh, tell me how does it look from you i know that you you were just in israel on a trip that probably dealt with the rifts in israeli society quite deeply feel free to share any insights from that trip but i'm just curious more generally how does the situation on the ground in israeli society appear from the outside hmm. i think so yes, I, I was on a, a trip. It was called Masterclass Israel Experience. Um, it was a professional development trip led by Hillel International, um, where we were going all around Israel and in various areas inside uh, Judea and Samaria and learning about both the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Israeli-Israeli conflict uh, through the idea of din and chesed, judgment, and, and loving kindness. And so at the beginning of the trip, they had asked us to suspend our deen, that we were trying to focus more on our chesed um, throughout the trip to open our minds, to be empathetic. Um, we heard from Hilltop youth and we heard from Palestinian youth activists in Bethlehem. So it was uh, a wide variety uh, on that end. Um, but I found that it was a, a trip of other Hillel uh, educators as well. It wasn't um, just people who work on campuses. It was also executive directors, um, people who write Israel education curriculum for Hillel, campus support directors, uh, programming associates, things like that. So it's a pretty wide uh, array of people. Um, so they asked us to suspend our our dean and lean into chesed. And I found that by the end of the trip, uh, people had actually suspended their chesed and moved into dean, or perhaps they were more willing to share it. Um, but we were looking at the, these conflicts through the idea of us versus them. And I said at the beginning of the trip that I don't view Palestinians as them. I view them as a part of the us. And it took me a really long time to get to that point. And the vision movement helped me get to that point. But a lot of the other participants were really struggling with that. Um, and I think American Jews really see that as well. Um, Palestinians are the them. Um, even for people who are involved in JVP, and if not now, Palestinians are them. They're still the other. Um, they're just elevated, uh, perhaps. What about the internal Israeli divides? Like, to what extent would you say most of the participants on your program would look at the side of Israeli society they disagree with as of them? I think we met with a, uh, a Hilani woman, a secular woman, who was one of the protest leaders. And she was one of the most loved speakers on the trip, um, which 
was interesting to me because we had a variety of, of religious observances as well. Um, I, like, I wouldn't say that the entire trip was secular. And she said uh, during her lecture that she was giving us that she didn't see a reconciliation with the more religious sects of Israeli society and that she wanted a separation. She wanted a Canton system. And there was this visceral reaction from the other participants of the group. Um, it didn't really matter what the lecture was supposed to be about. They all wanted to grill her on that um, and how difficult that was for them to understand. And so I think for all of uh, its faults, the American Jewish community really does see the global Jewish community as an us, um, even ones that are uh, that live completely differently from them, that are significantly more or less observant than them. Um, and I, I have found that the American Jewish community's uh, acceptance of pluralism is something that Israel can actually really learn from. Do you think it really comes down to levels of observance or is it more about worldviews? I think the two are conflated. I think it is really more about worldviews, but I really, I do think the two are conflated. Um, if you're wearing a, a knit kippah, you're assumed to be a dati lumi or, or a settler or something like that. And that's, I think, a high-level assumption, perhaps. Um, my my partner works in another Hillel, and uh, when he was joining, uh, they asked his other staff asked him, like, what would you do if you met with a student who was really put off by your kippah and, and thinks that you're, you know, a conservative or or something like that because you're wearing a religious symbol? Um, and he was very he was taken aback by that. Um, and I I don't know. I have found that my students, at the very least, um, don't make those assumptions. But I, I think that has to do with the diversity in Baltimore. I don't think that that is necessarily the average. Um, but I, I do think that the observance and worldviews really are conflated. Um, and perhaps that isn't very fair. Right. I mean, often I know in Israeli society, it's normal to see a lot of not just Jewish men in Kippot, but even rabbis attending anti-government protests. And at the same time, there are many men without Kippot, many women in pants who identify with this government and with the judicial reform legislation and with, you know, what we can call the deeper Jewish history ideology. I think that sometimes it's uh, reduced to issues of like ritual observance or or some kind of like shallow linear political spectrum. Uh, whereas I think in reality, the um, divides in the Jewish world, specifically in Israeli society, but I think in the diaspora as well, really come down to these different tribal forces within our people. And, uh, and each of these tribal forces can kind of have a religiously observant expression and a non-observant expression or a right-wing expression and a left-wing expression. Like I, for example, would personally identify as being part of the same tribe as, you know, many of the ministers in this government, especially the, you know, quote-unquote scarier ministers. But I experience myself as kind of a left-wing expression of that tribe, if that makes sense. Right, right. And and you had asked, you know, um, what is the the perception from outside of of the? I think uh, you alluded to, uh, you know, what is the perception of of these ministers? Um, I think speaking to Israelis, even ones who are against the government, 
they were very willing to say that not everyone agrees with every single thing and there may be some validity in what the governor what the the pro-judicial uh reform they would they would call it overhaul the pro-judicial overhaul people are saying but in america uh we only really see a very specific english language media covering uh the judicial reform and and what these ministers are saying and i can tell you a bunch of horrible things that uh these ministers have said but I couldn't tell you a bunch of really wonderful things that they have said. Um, many of my students have come to me uh, in, the, in the recent months showing me a headline of one of the, of Netanyahu saying some awful thing about Arabs or um, Bezalel Smotrich saying something awful about the LGBTQ plus and asking me like, oh, does this mean that every single person who voted for this party believes these awful things? It's, it's difficult for Americans to understand, I think, that Israelis really do vote based off of tribes and not so much based off of politics. Because um, in America, you have two options. And for many people, you don't really have two options. You know, I live in Maryland. Maryland is a blue state. And while I do vote blue, if I didn't vote blue, it really wouldn't matter because my state is going blue anyway. Um, we vote for the person. Um, and not really the the idea of the tribe, um, and it's it's hard. I I think one of the most difficult things about this current government is that it made my job a lot harder in in normalizing Israel because it's also it's not just oh did every single person who voted for this party believe in this horrible thing that Ben Gavir said about burning down Arab towns? It's do all Israelis feel this way? Because this is the current government, so they must support their current government, right? I think it's very confusing for them. Well, regardless of whether or not most Israelis agree with you know, burning down Palestinian communities, um, what's clear is that Israel's socio-cultural trajectory is more towards figures like Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir meaning that the country is changing, like just based on demography, the country is changing. My personal feeling is that Israeli society as a whole, for the most part, relates to Palestinians as the enemy. And I think that based on each tribe's connection to Jewish identity or version of Jewish identity, they might respond to Palestinians being the enemy in different ways. Meaning, like, at, at the end of the day, I think we all know that Benny Gantz has killed a lot more Palestinians than Itamar Ben-Gvir. Like, that's clear. But it's like a type of violence that's accepted as much cleaner and much more legitimate, obviously, than the, the thought of, like, Jews taking the initiative as civilians to launch a revenge attack on the Palestinian village next door. To me, it feels like this conversation is less about you know how many palestinians are going to be killed or injured or deprived of property and more about who are we how do we behave you see what i'm saying or not really i do see what you're saying um and i think that there's something in there about uh the military um i think americans there's a really big or really strong support for for the military and this idea that the military did it within certain like the confines of the law then it's acceptable um and that's 
you know, the movie Oppenheimer just came out, right? And so uh, it's, you know, about the the creation of the, of the nuclear bombs. And it was very interesting to see all this uh, discourse pop up all of a sudden about people trying to figure out, like, wait, this may not have been the right thing to do. And then others shaming them for, for not, for only just coming to that conclusion. Um, but I think the, perhaps the reason why Ben Gavir is less uh, stomachable than Gantz is because Ben Gavir says it. Like he, he comes out and he's, he has this violent rhetoric, whereas uh, Benny Gantz's uh, violence is a lot more hidden. Um, it's proper. It's, it's along with the, the idea of, um, like, I wouldn't say civility perhaps, but it's, it's within the, the rules of, of acceptable conduct or what, what they think is acceptable. To be clear, I oppose vigilante violence um, largely because I think it undermines the authority of the state. Like I look at the state of Israel as the vehicle through which the Jewish people collectively fulfill the mitzvah of possessing the land. So any violence that takes place outside of the framework of the state feels like it's undermining the state. Obviously, I want the state to behave a certain way and, you know, we can all fight for the changes we'd like to see in society. But for me, taking matters into our own hands and, you know, engaging in vigilante violence and revenge attacks feels like a red line. Uh, but at the same time, I also acknowledge that, I don't know about Itamar Ben-Gvir himself, but I think a lot of his voters really do see the conflict as an almost horizontal tribal conflict. I think certainly most of the Jews living in places like Yitzhar or other mountaintops, you know, around Shechem or, or east of Shiloh, where there have been attacks against Palestinians. I think that, first of all, the attacks do go both ways. Um, second of all, I, I think they really see it as they are locked in conflict with this other tribal identity down in the valley and the army and the state are almost perceived as like referees. Hmm. Somewhat biased referees, but referees nonetheless. And I think that's a very different perception than the Benny Gantz voter. I think the Benny Gantz voter very much sees like Israel as this military power that's on top and Palestinians as being the enemy but an enemy that we've, for the most part, gotten the upper hand over. Uh, and maybe, you know, if we didn't have the upper hand, we'd be dead, but we have the upper hand. Yeah, I think that's not just the Benny Gantz voter uh, perspective. I think that's the American Jewish perspective as well, uh, including those who are more Israel critical. Um, I think that that's very much how they see it. Right, like I, I've noticed just in conversations with Palestinians over the years, I, I remember initially being surprised by the extent to which Palestinians seem to not even recognize a conflict at all. You know, from the perspective of many of them, Israel won the conflict a long time ago and we're just being jerks, we're just behaving oppressively. Whereas to the vast majority of Israeli society and probably most diaspora Jews as well, there is a two-sided conflict that is still ongoing. Yeah, a two-sided conflict that's still ongoing. I, th I think, yes. Um, something that I have noticed is that both sides, and I, I don't like to, to use the word sides because, again, I, I do view Palestinians as a part of the us, but both sides act as if they're at war, but they won't admit it. And 
I think that this is actually a framework that has helped some of my American students to understand why uh, settlers would go out and and you know slash tires after uh, some like one of their friends was shot at or something like that. Um, but I also think it's important to to mention that um, most. I think most people, and I say people, I mean Jews, but I think most people who interface with the conflict are not as well educated on everything that happens. Um, you said that, you know, price tag attacks go both ways. And I know this because I obsessively read Israeli news, but a lot of the people I interact with really don't. Um, they hear about a Palestinian kid being killed in a, in a fight, or they, they hear about the, the terror attack that happened in Ahalat Ben Yamin the other day. Um, but they don't really hear like what actually happens on the ground every single day uh, in between these two groups. Right, the extent to which it is tit for tat in many regions, but obviously the Jews do have the upper hand only because we have the army to back us up. And in Judea and Samaria, in the West Bank, the army is essentially in control and it's our army. And even if the higher level commanders are sensitive to public perception and want to be even-handed, often the low-ranking soldiers on the ground are very clearly on the side of the Jews. Yes, I think it's it's the backing and protection of the army, um, but I think it also, I think it also really does simply come down to having weapons or not, or being allowed to have weapons. This is really displayed in how like CNN or AP News covers uh, tit-for-tat violence between settlers and Palestinians as well. I think there's always a, a, a teenager with a gun on his hip shown, or a soldier with a big gun shown up against a Palestinian who's armed with only a rock. Um, and I, I don't think the answer is to keep giving people more guns. Um, but I, I do think that they, they see that there's an uneven power dynamic there. Right. You seem to like that word settler a lot, huh? We've just been using it a lot in the past week, um, not in the sense of, you know, everyone who does that is like a colonial settler, but just in the sense of like, we all know when, you know, when we say settler, we mean someone who has moved across the green line. Um, I actually generally don't try and use those terms, um, but with my, my students, I teach a Israel education, uh, like learning cohort in the semester. And something that I say in my first class that I, that I teach is that I will use any and all terms just so that you, the students will get familiarity with them. So if I'm talking about the apartheid wall, they know I'm also talking about the separation barrier. And so when they go and they talk to other people about these things, if they hear the words apartheid wall, they'll know what they're talking about. Um, because that was an issue that I experienced. Um, I didn't know what people were talking about when they said occupation or like checkpoints or things like that. I had this weird idea uh, in my head of, oh, you know, they, they think it's a occupation, like having a passport is occupation. That's not what Palestinians mean when they say occupation. Um, but I, I do try and use a variety of terms. But no, when I when I say settler, I'm not trying to say that um, anyone's like settler colonialism or anything like that. Right, although, you know, there's a discussion to be had there. But yeah, for the most part, I guess I'm comfortable saying West Bank Jew. Sometimes I like the term Judean, but uh, really like West Bank Jew, I think is the most like accurate and neutral term. The funny thing is there are a lot of Israelis who might call themselves settlers when speaking English just because of their lack of understanding English leads them to think that's just the term for themselves. Like it's just like what people call them. So they call themselves that, which is really... It's a word that has deeply negative connotations, basically saying 
they have no right to be where they are or their presence there is somehow immoral or or unnatural you know like the i guess white people in north america but they use that word just because that's what they hear everybody calling them in english all the time and don't realize that it carries negative connotations um i think that's very true uh i think that's what many americans think and many american jews think of when they think of settlers um but you know we just spent uh, a, a long time with with people who would call themselves settlers i think for that language barrier reason that you mentioned and they're just living on a hilltop or a mountaintop they're not like they're they're not moving into the bones of a recently evicted palestinian home or anything like that but that's that's certainly the perception um fear and and anger it gets clicks and clicks get advertisements and advertisements get money and profit and so there's uh, only um it's only incentivized when we spread incitement and and such simplified versions of each other's stories right i often say that um among the jewish communities in the west bank there are two inverted spectrums i think there's a spectrum in terms of to what extent Jews are living according to settler colonial structures and there's a spectrum in regards to how violent or how much you know Jews from certain communities might engage in violence against Palestinians or or even against soldiers in some cases and these two spectrums are really inverted meaning the most settler communities in the West Bank I'm talking about Efrat, Alon Shvut, Neve Daniel, Elazar, you know essentially Gush Etzion minus Batain um they're the least likely to be violent but they're also you know the most blind to the greedy realities in the conflict and the extent to which they're monopolizing natural resources or or, or infringing on the you know freedom of movement of, of other people just with their presence i think they're just like blind to it whereas those who are the most violent are not really living according to settler colonial structures at all but they see themselves as responsible for their own security and they don't hide behind like a fence with like you know a, an army unit around the fence but rather see themselves as responsible to make sure all of the Palestinians nearby are afraid to mess with their village. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I I've heard it said many times that oh, you can go to Gush Etzion, it feels like it just feels like it's Israel. It doesn't feel like you're in the West Bank at all. I've heard that a lot. Um something one of our uh trip facilitators mentioned was a story of of uh, meeting up with a Palestinian advocate in uh, Gush Etzion and her taxi driver wouldn't actually drop her off uh, at the at the junction because he he was afraid of the soldiers and so she walked a couple hundred meters with her hands up in the air towards towards the the junction so she wouldn't get shot um and it's very sad to hear but you know we also we visited a a real like hilltop settlement or a hilltop outpost um last week where the there were like four or five teenagers living in a truck like a, a tent attached to a truck barely with any electricity i think the only like cooking utensil they had was a grill and they're not being protected by the idf there's no soldiers with guns bearing down on anyone who comes near them um it felt actually quite labor zionist in a way um but it it felt a lot less inflammatory than Gushetzion which is really not uh, it really does not go with the the narrative the, the the media narrative of oh it's 
the obstacle to peace is, is the settlements, it's the hilltop youth, it's all these things. It's, I think it's pretty clear the, the obstacle to peace is the occupation. You want to define that word? Because people might hear one thing and you might need another. Absolutely. Um, I think... And, and I'm hesitating because it's it's difficult. It's difficult to to explain. Um, I think it's definitely one of those things that when you're there and you see it, you're very clear like, oh, this is the occupation. You go to Bethlehem and you see the giant wall and the watchtowers and you see this intense traffic caused by it. You say, oh, this is the occupation. You, you know, drive through the Jordan River Valley or some other uh, area where there's some sort of checkpoint and you get to pass through really quickly, but then you see a bunch of Palestinians walking through and you know they're trying to get to their their everyday jobs. You say, oh, this is like this is the occupation. Um, I think it's the I don't think it's just this, but I think it, this is perhaps a, an easy definition. Um, but it's the the daily limits that the Israeli government and military places on Palestinian lives whether that's checkpoints, whether that's um, Palestinians in East Jerusalem getting stopped by cops and, and being asked to show identification papers and show a reason for being there. Um, I think those things are really the occupation. And, and I think in that sense, like Gush Etzion is a lot more of the occupation than, than these hilltop settlements or hilltop outposts. Because um, as I said, or, and as you've said as well, like the with the, the hilltop youth, they're responsible for their own security. They're not calling the, the IDF to come in and scare the people around them. And Gush Etzion, when you drive into Gush Etzion, it's a little in intimidating. There's soldiers everywhere. There's barbed wire. There's big watchtowers. It's it's scary. Yeah, I often say that um, the Jews in Judea are not the Americans in Vietnam or the French in Algeria. The problem is sometimes we behave like we are. I, I would argue that Israel's military occupation of the West Bank actually undermines the Jewish people's legitimate connection to Judea and Samaria. Um, I think that's very true. Kenna, wh why don't you tell our listeners where they can find your work, your opinions? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, first, my opinions are my own. They're not representative of my employer. Um, but I've written for New Zionist Congress. Um, I've also written for the Vision Movement. Um, and you can follow me on threads um, at Kenna, K-E-N-N-A underscore L-A-E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. um, but you can also, I, I, I prefer conversations more than posts. Um, so I'm always open to questions and things like that. Okay, great. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, if listeners are interested in checking out the show notes of this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 103.